Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is Ian Drake with New Books and Law Podcast, and today we are joined by Christy Ford Chapin. She's an associate professor at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, and she has written a book about America's healthcare system. It's entitled Ensuring America's Health, the Public Creation of the Corporate Healthcare System. Christy, thanks for joining us on New Books and Law Podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Ian. So, In this book, you cover the history of uh, the development of the American healthcare system in terms of how it's paid for. Um, What brought you to this issue in the first place in in terms of your historical concerns? Well, what brought me to the topic was that um, I'm sure, as as your audience well knows, a, a lot of books have been written on healthcare. But I was particularly interested in the role of insurance companies in the system because not a lot has been written on that topic. There have been a couple of books. Um, so, and of course, as, as you all know, the insurers are the ones who finance the system. And as I dug deeper into the development and that history, it became obvious to me that they do far more than just financing the system. They also have a lot of control over coordinating the system, how doctors are paid, and how medicine is practiced. And so, you don't begin, though, with just insurance. You go back to the 19th century and the way medicine was practiced prior to the insurance system. So could you explain those pre-insurance days? Yes, that's really important to showing the insurance company model, which is what I call it uh, in my book. I I show how there was this insurance company model that came about in the 1930s, and that's what our system is based around today. However, it would be very difficult for readers um, or your audience members to understand how that insurance company model differs from from other potential models if I didn't talk about those. So what I do in my book is I go back and I look um, from the 19th century, um, particularly late 19th century into the early 20th century, um, that there were so many different models, so many different ways of organizing and financing the healthcare system. Um, and they involved everything from businesses contracting with physicians, uh, to union-run funds, um, mutual aid societies, which were often ethnic, whether whether Irish or Jewish or um, African-American mutual aid societies. Uh, I looked at a number of different ways that the system had been organized in order to provide uh, or, or make health care and health services more widely available for people. I was particularly struck by one model um, called the prepaid physician group, uh, model where physicians got together in multi-specialty groups so that patients could have one-stop shopping healthcare in one area, uh, and how those physicians and those groups acted as their own insurers. So the patients, rather than paying a monthly fee to an insurance company, were paying it to their physician group. Uh, and these, I was very surprised to find how um, popular these groups were, that there were a lot of them, at least 300 or more uh, by the late 1920s, early 1930s. Uh, they were very popular among progressive reformers and customers, and that was because they were able to deliver high-quality care at very low cost. By tying the physician to the bottom line, making them the insurer, it perfectly incentivized the physician so they weren't encouraged to either oversupply services or, or pad their bills or, on the other hand, ration services because they wanted to sign up as many people as possible. Uh, and, and usually the way these physicians were paid is with a set salary and a portion of the quarterly profits of the group. So finding out about all these other models really put into stark contrast the insurance company model uh, that came about in the 1930s. Okay, and so in understanding the the way doctors lived, it seems to me that that's really important because you emphasize the resistance of doctors to the insurance model, and I want to talk about that in a few minutes, but I want to um, make sure that we lay out why the pre-insurance 
state of affairs was in some way, I guess for some doctors it was appealing and for others it was not. And so what is it that doctors as individual professionals liked about their practice before insurance model came along versus what did they dislike? Well, what I found is that there was a big difference between the leaders of the American Medical Association, the AMA, um, which I'm sure most people know, they represented physicians. They were very powerful during this period, much more powerful than they are today. Those physician leaders tended to be uh, elite physicians who often were specialists and practiced in uh, the city. So their concerns could often be very different from that of rank and file, you know, the little family doctor, general practitioner out in the heartland of America. So what it really appeared is that you had these elites making a decision that a lot of the rank and file weren't uh, in sync with, but they had to obey or go along because during this period, the AMA acted pretty much as as regulators of the entire market. So it was very easy for them to have a physician's license pulled because they had so much influence over the licensing boards and also to have their hospital admitting privileges revoked, among, among other uh, punishments, so to speak. Um, physicians who were involved with prepaid physician groups liked it a lot. I mean, it was an exciting way to practice medicine because you're not just working within only your same specialty. Working with physicians across the specialty, um, what I found is that these physicians at the end of the day would sit down and discuss their, their complex, complicated cases. Somebody that was difficult to diagnose, somebody that had uh, numerous different conditions. And it was, you know, through these discussions, as you can imagine, if they're learning from one another uh, and they're bringing all their expertise together in one room uh, to, to discuss um, what they needed to do for a patient. Uh, and, the, and, these, and these groups and such also gave them just a lot more flexibility to change things, figure out medicine as they went along. But the reason um, the leaders of the AMA were so opposed to physician groups and all the other models I mentioned with unions and mutual aid societies that were consumer cooperatives and a number of other models. The thing that the AMA feared about them was we have to remember that late 19th century, early 20th century was the rise of the big corporation. And so people were very worried about the power of these corporations. Um, of course, there was union organizing in order to counter some of this power, but also the professions were very worried about this. So the AMA leaders are fearful that if something like a medical corporation comes about, then the physician's going to get captured by the corporation, much as the engineer does, much as the accountants do. They don't want to be sucked into a big hierarchy, bureaucratic um, hierarchy where they're answering to somebody else, particularly, you know, a non-physician. And so when they see, for example, these prepaid groups, they see a lot of different physicians, you know, from different specialties. That looks like the beginning of a nascent bureaucracy or with different departments. And they also see capital pooling. And so that's why they are so fearful uh, that these medical groups are going to turn into they would call medical supermarkets or uh, the corporate practice of medicine, the commercial practice of medicine. That's why they were so interested in stamping those out. Okay, so – you have these leaders of the AMA, and it should be noted the AMA has been around since 1847. And so, mm -hmm. this, was it mandatory to join the AMA or something that was essentially beneficial to one's career to join? It was beneficial. Their, uh, their, joint, their uh, membership numbers were far, far greater than they are today. You know, when you're looking at the beginning of the 50s, you're looking at you know, perhaps 75% of physicians uh, are members, and the ones who aren't are often it's because they're retired or they're still in medical school or training. When you, when you um, say the 50s, you mean the 1950s, right? Yes, exactly, the 1950s. And the reason it was important it was important for a number of reasons. It would help you get um, hospital admitting privileges, for one. You wanted to do that. Um, and, and the way physicians would do this is you have to join your local medical society, the constituent society of the National AMA. So they had, uh, the National AMA had state societies under it and then local like city and county AMAs. Um, so for example, there'd be one in Washington DC or there'd be one in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, and it was important not just for getting hospital privileges, 
but also, um, believe it or not, as early as the very early 20th century, malpractice insurance already was a pretty important and big deal here in our very litigious uh, United States. And doctors could not obtain malpractice insurance usually unless they belonged to their local medical society. That was based on the idea that physicians need to have, you know, other local area physicians have their back in case they were called upon to testify in court. Um, so joining the medical society was a very important professional signal, uh, and, and it was a sign that a physician was was in accord with, you know, the, the local ruling elite physicians. And, and they really use these medical societies were very powerful. If, if a young physician came to town, for example, and tried to undercut fees, the standing fees that everybody else was charging, they would also find themselves, for example, in a lot of hot water with these medical societies. So they they functioned to make sure that everybody, you know, marched to the tune that the AMA was playing. All right. So in the 19th century, you have – in the I, I guess this is – uh, the late 19th century when the doctors, the prepaid doctors groups are coming along, right? There's, yeah, they're starting to. It's by, you know, where you really start to have a, a, a nice thick mass of them is by the late uh, 1920s, early 1930s, although then the AMA is stepping in and crushing them. Okay. And so the doctors that are in these groups, this is a minority of the, of the profession, right? A, a small minority. Well, it's hard to know because it looks like the physicians who are involved in them like them a lot. The problem was the AMA immediately started to go after them. And even some of the physicians who started them were pretty well-known, even if they were pretty well-known physicians, like, for example, some who had been president of their local medical society. The AMA made a very big point of going after them to have their licenses revoked because they had practiced commercial medicine, and also to have their hospital admitting privileges revoked. Um, physicians had far more power over hospitals then than they do today. So okay. as soon as physicians see this happening, they get the picture. In fact, the AMA is even printing warnings to physicians in the Journal of the American Medical Association. Here's this prestigious scientific journal, and they're using its pages to, to tell physicians, if you join one of these groups, we will come after you, and we will destroy your career. So even though they came to be pretty popular, they were also very quickly stamped out. And I know even that there are cases of physicians saying to other physicians, I'd love to join your group or your consumer cooperative, but I can't. I'm too scared what's going to happen to me if I, if I did. Okay, and so the reason that doctors that are in these groups like them is, as you mentioned, on the one hand, uh, for the benefit of the patient, there seems to be a greater degree and diversity of expertise that can be applied to perhaps hard cases, right? Mm-hmm. But in addition so, to that, okay. Oh, no, I'm so sorry. I was just going to say that's a really, really important point that I don't want the – your audience members to lose sight of, um, and it's easy to lose sight of if you're relatively healthy. If, if you have, you know, maybe think of somebody's elderly grandparents, or if you know somebody who has something wrong with them and they've been pushed off from specialist to specialist, they run a battery of tests, they can't figure it out, they send you to the next specialist. Nobody ever really owns that patient. Nobody, it's really in nobody's interest to find out what is wrong wrong with that person once they've exhausted the test for which they can get a reimbursement from the insurance company. So you have people stuck in these limbos for years of not being able to find out what's wrong with them and just feeling desperate. And then also you can imagine patients, as I was mentioning, elderly patients who have numerous different physicians and medicines, and yet nobody's coordinating that at all. Even though theoretically the general practitioner is, our system simply is not set up for general practitioners to be able to handle that. They don't have the time. Okay, so even though we don't have public opinion polling in, at this time period, there seems to be a sense that patients themselves stand the ch chance of being much better off with this type of prepaid doctor collective system. Um, rather than simply going to individual doctors. Yes. Okay. But from the doctor's perspective, in other words, from the self-interest perspective, um, are they are they better off uh, in these groups? Because it seems to me that at least even though they're salaried, which may be uh, the 19th century, of course, in America is famous for its regard for salaries as wage slavery, but uh, 
even though they are salaried, it's on the other hand, it's dependable regular income. And is that a benefit in terms of self-interest for the practicing physician over the apprentice model or the, the model, the lone physician out uh, by himself in the hinterland? Right. It would depend on which physician you were talking to. Most of these physicians were salaried plus earned a portion of the profits, which I think is very important because you, the good thing about the physician earning a, a portion of their group's profits is that incentivizes them correctly when they're practicing medicine so that they lose money if they're oversupplying services, which is the problem we have today under the insurance company model, but they also lose money if they withhold services or ration care and physicians go and tell, or excuse me, patients, you know, through word of mouth say, this is not a good prepaid group, you know, to join or I'm not going to sign up um, next month because I don't feel like I'm getting good care and there's another prepaid group down the road. Um, so In other words, they have competitors. <laughs> exactly. They have competitors. what the AMA hated because I think some people have this erroneous belief of the AMA that because they opposed government intervention of, into medicine, that they were somehow these laissez-faire, market competition, you know, pro-market, and not at all. The AMA believed that as physicians, as profession, their profession above all professions you know, could not be dirtied and sullied in the, in the, in the crass commercial marketplace. So the idea of groups competing against one another or physicians competing against one another for a position within a prepaid group or a consumer cooperative or, or whatever else was anathema to them. They did not want physicians to at all be associated with a competitive marketplace. And that's a theme that I think emerges in your account of this early and also in the account of the insurance model period is that on the one hand, there's self-interest uh, that motivates these actors and doctors in particular, but on the other hand, it's very ideologically saturated with competing views about what is the good physician and what is um, the way that people should engage with the healthcare system or get obtain medical care, right? Exactly. Um, and another thing AMA was also looking at is they were fearful that once there was organization brought to the market, whether it be consumer cooperatives or union funds, which, of course, you know, they didn't want unions to have anything to do with it, or these prepaid groups, they were fearful that that would make it far easier for the government to intervene. And, in fact, it, there's some truth to their fear because if you look at places like Germany where there's early, you know, late 19th century government intervention in the medical marketplace, it is because they already started having this type of organization. So it was easier um, for the government um, to step in. Uh, and so I'm sorry, I, I forgot my train of thought there. I think I was going to say something else. But that is another reason that they, they want to get rid of these types of organizations. Oh, I know what I was going to say, progressive reformers were very interested in prepaid physician groups. They wanted to organize the market around them because they saw how efficient they were, that they offered high-quality medical care uh, at low prices. So what a lot of reformers were saying and calling for in the 1920s is, let's go ahead and organize the private market around these, and then it will be easy for the government to intervene. In fact, I, from my research, it looks like it's as late as the uh, battle for Truman's universal health care bill at the end of the 1940s. The progressive health care reformers within his administration were still trying to affect this change. We're still thinking about the possibility of, as they introduced federal funding and universal, a universal system, that they would be able to go back and reclaim this prepaid model. Right. So if... Doctors, both in the prepaid groups and in the what we'll call the AMA camp that's against the prepaid groups, if both of these groups are not really supporting the insurance model, explain how that insurance model comes along and who's the prime supporter of it. Okay, that's a great question. So the AMA is very successful in beating back all these competing organizations. Um, they they have some shutdown, and, of course, this is a warning to everybody else not to even try it. So they're going through the marketplace and destroying a lot of um, organization, but then that creates another problem for them. And that is in the 1930s, of course, with the New Deal, the Great Depression, 
the federal government is intervening in um, the economic sector in ways it never had before. And, of course, healthcare seems like a particularly problematic sector. It seems like a place that would make a lot of sense for them to intervene as well. Um, in fact, in the 1935 Social Security Act, uh, the, the group that worked on that, the committee that worked on that, was really hoping to include funding for health care. But in the end, President Roosevelt, you know, astute politician that he was, said, no, we can't. If we do that, then we could sink the entire bill with physician political opposition. However, after that point, uh, President Roosevelt is calling about, you know, a conference on health care. At the end of the 1930s, you start to get legislation proposed in Congress for federal funding for health care. And from there on out, it's a perennial issue at the federal level, reforming health care. And so for the AMA, the writing is on the wall. You know, this, you know, there are federal officials who want to intervene. And so the AMA leaders realize they need to do something with the private sector so that they can uphold the private sector. They want to be able to make the argument that the private sector is doing great, people have access to medicine, there's no problem, and there's no need for federal reform. So they realize they can't just keep this 19th century model, right, of the one individual physician, no insurance, because they were opposed to insurance. They cannot keep that model and, and make this political argument. So, what they do is they pretty much design their own model. I, I like to say, you know, in 1938, you know, the AMA pretty much out of thin air just creates this insurance company model, which should give your listeners some idea of how artificial it was. It didn't grow up naturally out of market conditions. It was imposed top down. And so what they decided is, okay, we're going to have to allow health insurance to go through. We've been opposed to health insurance, but we're going to have to allow it. We're still going to oppose physician groups, particularly multi-specialty groups. They start to have to allow single-specialty groups, but not multi-specialty. But we're going to allow insurance, but if we say that only insurance companies can fund insurance, not consumer cooperatives, not prepaid doctor groups, not unions, nobody else is allowed to fund insurance except for insurance companies because they're located far, far away from those physicians, right? They're these corporations headquartered, you know, somewhere in Connecticut or New York or, or whatever state, but all the physicians around the country, they can't monitor them to the degree that another financier that was local would be able to do. So they, they create this insurance company model. They're going to go through insurance companies, and, of course, they demand that insurance companies, this is very important, will not pay physicians on a salary basis or a per capita basis, but they have to pay them on a fee-for-service basis, which means physicians will receive a payment for each and every service and procedure they offer, even within one office visit. It can't even just be a set fee for an office visit. It's everything they do within that office visit. So they demand fee-for-service payments, which, of course, incentivizes physicians um, to overutilize and, and offer too many services. Um, and, and this is not an indictment of physicians. This would occur in any profession uh, because people are people, and, and, and they're just incentivized to do this. And, of course, I know myself I would probably rationalize it as, well, I'm just offering gold standard of care. This is what I'd want my family member to have. So it incentivizes them to overutilize care. There's also a lot of problems with um, bill padding, and um, the insurers are warned not to even, you know, ask or inquire. They're not allowed to inquire about why physicians are doing certain things. The physician is to have complete autonomy. And so this is happening in the late 1930s, right? This is right. when this uh, insurance model is developed by the AMA. So. On the one hand, the AMA could be, the, uh, at least in terms of the medical profession, it could be the tip of the spear for lobbying for government preferences because it's an organized group. It can arguably go to the public with its own resources to advocate for a particular public policy. Um, but instead, what they're doing is reacting to the fear that government's going to step in and regulate them if they don't come up with their own alternative, right? Exactly. In fact, what's interesting is they come up with this model in 1938, and they're still hostile to it. It's funny. It's their own model, but for, you know, a good 10 years, they're still kind of really dragging their feet because they're so suspicious of the idea of having a third-party financier involved. 
But mm-hmm. every time that it pops up as a federal issue, it forces them to cling to the insurance company more and more. And what you see happening, and particularly by the time we get to the Truman debates at the end of the 40s, it sets up this race between their insurance company model and the public sector. And, and there's this realization, I mean, they talk about this explicitly. Almost every conference and meeting and journal that I can find of physicians and insurers, they're, ta- they're talking about having to expand this model as quickly as they can to keep the government out. If they can quickly spread coverage to as much of the population as possible, and if they can start to make these policies more and more generous, because everybody recognizes the model is going to create cost problems. I mean, there's almost no question about it. Insurance companies are very fearful about getting involved with this. The only reason they do is for political reasons. They're fearful of a nationalized health um, healthcare system. There's this idea in the business community that if healthcare is nationalized, in the entire country, you know, um, all the other economic sectors, it'll set a precedent for all the other economic sectors as well. So insurance companies reluctantly get involved. And then everybody, you know, whether they're healthcare scholars or analysts, reformers, insurers, Republicans, Democrats, moderates, progressives, it doesn't matter. Everybody knows that this model is a mess. Everybody knows it's going to cause um cost problems. So when these when these policies are first rolled out, they're very meager. They only cover, say, 60 to 80 percent of your hospital costs. So what, as they're starting to get into this competition against the government sector, they have to continue not only expanding the number of people they cover, but making the policies more and more generous so that they increasingly appear more similar to what we think of health insurance today. And that's all done not for profit motive reasons, and, and except for the fact that they, they think it's a good long-term strategy profit-wise, but um, short-term they're trying to keep the federal government out. They're continually showing up to Congress, talking to people in the administration and saying, see how much our numbers have grown since last year. See how many more people we're covering. See these new benefits we're offering. Now we're starting to cover you know, lab laboratory tests and diagnostic tests and services and procedures inside the physician's office, outside of the hospital. They're constantly updating um, policymakers with these progress reports to prove that the insurance company model is superior than anything that policymakers can come up uh, with uh, in the federal policy realm. So you have the AMA being the chief proponent of the insurance model. What about insurance companies themselves? What do they think of this? Well, like I said, it's really, really quite, quite illuminating and, and, and humorous being in the insurance company archives. For example, seeing how at the beginnings of the early 1930s, people were asking them, so are you going to get involved in health care? And they're saying, no way. That's just insane. Like, that's just such a bad idea. Even up until the early 1950s, you still have insurers warning other insurers, say insurance executives, saying this is not a good idea. I'm warning you that we should not get in, you know, into the healthcare business. And it's not just because healthcare is difficult insurance-wise, it's because of this very particular model. They're not allowed to just say give, you know, physicians a standard set fee for the year per capita for whatever patient they take on. Because they have to do it on the AMA's terms, it's it's really a bad deal. And, sh- and sure enough, as soon as this insurance company model starts taking off at the end of the 1940s, medical care costs start skyrocketing. The cost increases are going up much higher than any other category of goods in the consumer price index. You see that happening at the late 1940s once the model is taking hold. And then that happens, you know, subsequently every year after. Already, healthcare problems are a huge, um, huge political issue well before we get to uh, Medicare uh, and the 1965 passage of Medicare. Uh, and, of course, this is very concerning um, to insurance companies, but they have this political goal in mind to keep uh, out the federal government. And then once they start to get established in the field, then you start to get insurers who are more bought into uh, this line of business because they're the vice president of the healthcare side, and they start to build up teams and and and, and analysts and and actuaries. So you know they start to have the organizational capacity devoted to this this uh, line of coverage. So uh, the insurance companies realize um, that this is 
of course, they realize this, obviously, uh, that this is distinct from other types of insurance, such as fire insurance or homeowner's insurance. Um, right. Because, because the risk is going to accrue, there's always going to be a payout rather than preserving the asset uh, and avoiding fire. You're going to constantly have little fires come along and maybe even crises uh, in terms of catastrophic care, et cetera. So this is, seems to be a money-losing proposition. So what, what gets the insurance company to finally agree to this as something that they want to get in this, into this market? Really, it's just the political calculation. It really is. And even all through the 1940s and 50s, as you see them expanding it, they are constantly telling one another that they're doing this for political reasons. And they're saying, you know, finally, we'll get the, we'll get the market stabilized, we'll keep the government out, and then we'll have the market to ourselves and we won't have to worry about this. But what ends up happening is they're never able to control costs. Um, they start to introduce cost containment measures in the 1950s because of the cost problem. Of course, physicians are not at all happy with that, but they have this political problem that healthcare prices are skyrocketing, which is encouraging people to call for federal intervention. Uh, one thing that your audience should understand is a lot of people are aware of President Truman's push for universal care at the end of the 1940s. What was also very important was that all throughout the 1950s under Eisenhower, you have many groups in, in Congress, Republicans, Democrats, many of whom even opposed Truman's plan, trying to come up with their own reform. Because, again, they look at the insurance company model and think something has to be done because this simply isn't an efficient enough system to cover enough people with generous enough benefits. Uh, even President Eisenhower offers his own plan for reinsurance um, so that the government would pay back insurance companies for any losses they accrued uh, when they covered, say, the sick or the elderly or when they offered more comprehensive coverage and expansive benefits. So everybody is looking at this as a problem and trying to change it. Um, but by the time we get to the 1950s, the insurance companies are really – they've allied more tightly with the physicians and are trying to expand the system and then eventually starting to have to introduce cost containment pr um, procedures in order to continue making this political claim that the private sector has it under control. AMA leaders, of course, aren't happy about that, but again, in order to keep their political message uh, on time or, or – um, uh, at all relevant, they have to go ahead and start accepting some of these cost containment procedures, which I argue start to become really important because at first they start out very minimal, right? Very, very small things, but as, as insurers are starting to track physician treatments, uh, and, and how, uh, they deliver services, they're starting to become experts in healthcare. And they're starting to track everything they do through paperwork. They're starting to set up committees that over-review what physicians are doing. Granted, these committees all have physicians on them, and, and at first they have no teeth at all. But little by little, we see in the 50s and 60s, they start to set up more and more surveillance of physicians. And though there's so much conflict around this, and, I, you know, I take the time to show some of this uh, in my book, even though there's so much conflict around this with this, the physicians have to accept it because they've already made this, you know, bargain. They've made this deal with the devil. They're, they're in on this insurance company model, and they have to prove to policymakers now that it's a viable, robust model for the private market. And I think this is important because once you get to the 50s and 60s and thereafter, the power equation between physicians and insurers starts to flip, where you start to get physicians less and less powerful in dictating terms, and the insurance company, the financier, starts to get more and more powerful uh, and dictating even standard treatment blueprints to physicians. Today, your physician um, often cannot get a reimbursement from their insurance company unless they've followed a set standard treatment blueprint handed down from the insurance company. So I would argue that the insurer actually is shaping the way medicine is even practiced. Um, so, yes. So in addition to insurance companies, and doctors, there's there's some other vested interests in this that uh, seem to play a role in the development of this insurance model, and that's unions and corporations. So can you explain what role they play? Yes. 
Uh, unions are just so savvy through this whole process. They really, their analysts and the people they have working on health insurance, they really understand everything that's going on with the various models and the insurance company models. They want to enter into the healthcare sector and, for example, they have different types of models they work on. For example, there are some cases where they contract with a physician group, other cases where a union can contract with one or two physicians in the area to provide uh, services to uh, dues-paying members. They also even uh, try their own union welfare funds where the union is actually the management of physicians that are uh, that are on salary and answer to the union, for example. Um, but in addition to that, what's really important with them is as the insurance company model starts to take off, I think a, a lot of your listeners know that in the United States, a lot of health care is provided as fringe benefits through the employer. So you have corporations and employers purchasing uh, these insurance company benefits for their employees. And where there are there's union representation and bargaining, the unions are the ones who are always pushing the insurance companies to provide more and more coverage, more bells and whistles to these policies, making them more and more generous so that they cover, you know, everything from first dollar to last dollar soup to nuts. And that's really important because with the unions are out setting these, this gold standard in, in healthcare coverage, what happens is eventually the entire rest of the market, you know, whether it's sectors that aren't unionized or it's individual purchasers, that coverage is developing, you know, to eventually meet up to the gold standard that the, that the unions are setting. Okay. And so the one point that I recall you made was that even though insurers are not keen on providing health insurance because of the moral hazard problem, the increased costs, um, their corporate clients want it right. because it's going right. to quell union organizing. Exactly. So I mentioned that at the, I saw in the archives insurers saying, insurers saying we're not going to get involved with this. And the reason they're saying that is because they have companies, for example, DuPont coming to them and saying, look, you already you already provide us with life insurance policies. You already provide us with um, pension benefits that we provide for our employees. Now we want health care benefits. And often the reason the employer is demanding this is because they're trying to quell union organizing or at least get the upper hand uh, in, in such negotiations. Repeatedly they are turned down until finally, you know, with what's going on with the AMA, with what's going on at the federal policy level, they're giving in and saying, okay, fine, we'll, we'll go ahead and, and enter into this deal. That's correct. And you had noted that by the 1950s, uh, and I was surprised by this figure, uh, 70% of labor strikes are over health care issues or health and welfare issues. Yes, yes, it was a big, it was a, it was a big issue for them. And like I said, they, they were very savvy. They understood the market very well. And, and this is the argument. They're, they're also in league with the reformers and, and Truman's administration who are trying to get universal health care. Uh, and, and the argument that unions are making during that battle when they want Truman, Truman to win this fight is, is along with progressive reformers, they're making this argument that if we, if we finance healthcare through the government, we can rearrange the system so it's more efficient and that the, the benefits provided are far more generous. Uh, and the end, everybody will have healthcare and it'll still be far cheaper. So the unions all along are playing both a political role uh, and also a very important role in the private sector. They become very important once again uh, when Medicare, when the Medicare debate starts heating up at the end of the 1950s, and then that Medicare is finally passed uh, in 1965. They play a really big role with that as well. So prior, though, to uh, Medicare's passage, and I want to get to that in a moment, uh, but just to understand the corporate role in this, uh, the corporations not only might find some labor relations advantage in the provision of the insurance model, but also the government incentivizes the adoption of this through tax breaks. And so can you explain how that comes about? Right. So the government uh, paves the way for all this to actually occur because of the tax breaks. 
Um, there are tax loopholes that are really around from the very beginning of the IRS, you know, back in, in 1913, but then they're codified into law within, I think it's the 1954 Revenue Act. And this basically gives a tax break to corporations that provide fringe benefits for their employees. And this is important because the corporations, um, and often through the Chamber of Commerce and the National Association of Manufacturers, they're in league with organized physicians and insurance companies. They're all, for example, they're all allying together to defeat the Truman Plan for universal health care. So the employers also get pulled into this idea of, you know, it helps for us to provide our employees with health care, not only because it helps us on the union side of things, but it also helps this political movement to keep the government out of the health care sector and, you know, provide a measure of protection for all other economic sectors. Um, so, yes, you see them talking about this. It's also really important that employers get involved because as they're providing these benefits for their employees, employees are either not paying for their health care or is, is, is more uh, commonly happens and commonly happens today is they're paying a, a small fee every month for it. And this is important because as me- medical care costs are skyrocketing, insurance policy premiums are skyrocketing, most of your insured aren't noticing it. You know, there's no outcry from the public as you would expect because to them it feels like they're just paying a very small portion um, of their paycheck every month in order to get these great benefits. It's a problem today. A lot of people think, oh, I just pay, you know, 100 or $150 a month for my family of four. What they don't see is the $30,000 of income that they've forgone in order to get that coverage. And that becomes very important at this point, too, because you don't have um, consumer outcry that you would normally have because the employer provision is hiding uh, those those price increases. Well, it's always nice when somebody else seems to pay for it, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. But if people knew how much income they were losing because of this, they, I mean, Finally, I think maybe something would be done about, you know, about getting the cost under control. So let me, let's step back for a moment because I realize we're only partway through the story here and we haven't talked about the role the federal government play with Medicare and Medicaid, but, um, and I, I do want to address that in a few minutes, but a standard question it seems to me, and this is the kind of thing you would get in your dissertation defense, uh, historian would ask, is this a golden age thesis where the past was um, working really well until it all went sour at one point? Hmm. And it was working really well until it all went sour. Yeah, I, I guess. I mean, it's certainly a declension narrative, right? Um, well, let me. Maybe I should explain what I mean exactly. And so, the golden age trope is that conditions were going pretty well. They were good for the consumer. This is the prepaid doctor's groups. Um, The AMA resisted this, but uh, then again, you had consumer choice that was going to play a role. But at one point, uh, namely in the 1920s through the 40s, you have governments that are starting to put pressure on the medical profession that they're going to regulate them unless um, they start providing more care at, at presumably at lower cost, and so they come up with the insurance model, the alternative. And then your story about this, your history of this, is that costs skyrocket, and then the complaints are about cost, but nobody really questions the insurance model. So it seems that pre-insurance, it wasn't as if things were pristine, but certainly people were happier and costs were lower. But when the insurance model comes along, things start to skyrocket and everybody's complaining. Right, right. To a degree, the problem is even though there were all these different ways of organizing the market in the early 20th century, they're pretty immediately running up against the AMA conflict, which is a huge problem because um, where the AMA is stamping out the organization, it's very difficult for the average family to pay for medical care because medical care prices are rising anyway because end of the 19th century, you know, you have the germ theory, you have the, the modern medical revolution. Doctors are now actually helping patients rather than just killing them, which, I mean, I somewhat jest, but in the 19th century, they weren't 
necessarily being very helpful as they're bleeding a lot of their patients to death. And I, you know, even tell my students the story of how they kill George Washington very likely because of their intervention. But after the 19th century, they're actually being, you know, very helpful and this medicine is becoming more and more valuable. So what starts to become very problematic is that medical care costs, um, uh, service prices are rising, but it's difficult for families to budget for that because you don't know when you're going to need health care, where the AMA is stamping out organization and not allowing people to have a set payment every month that they know how to budget for. It is, it's problematic. And so the places that would be good is where, say, for example, you're, you're near a, a prepaid group that you can join or, or a consumer cooperative you can join. That's, that's great until perhaps the AMA comes along and and stamps it out if if they can't get enough political coverage for it. Um, so it already kind of is a problem, and we don't know how things would have been different because the AMA steps in to shut so much down. You know, I can I can say from looking at things that I think a lot of these models would have would have continued on, even consumer cooperatives and unions. I think the prepaid physician group would have been the most popular one. But I think you would have had a number of different models that would have continued on and yes, consumers would have decided what what was best for them. Because that seems to me to be to be the implicit thesis um ultimately for your for your history is that um the insurance model is doomed to be frustrating uh, to everybody involved because it does not control costs. And hence, when right. you can't control costs, you start to have to ration the health care that is otherwise known by the doctors and even the patients to be needed. Um, and so all of these fears about the provision of health care are ultimately brought to the fore if you adopt the insurance model. Where it, and the insurance model means just the third-payer model. Isn't that really what it is? It's just a well. A it's, not, it's it's a, it's much more specific than that. I mean, you're right. It is third party payer, but when you think about it, the union welfare funds were third party payer as well. It said it had to be the insurance company. It had to be fee for service. It could not include uh, multi specialty groups. So the AMA, you know, they carved out a very specific type of model that it would have to be. Okay, and so. If if you were prescribing reforms, though, what degree would you have the third party involved? In other words, you want to control costs or you want to reduce mm-hmm. costs. Mm-hmm. And so presumably these market mechanisms wherein people have choice, they have the ability to form different types of alliances, uh, meaning different types of business uh, uh, types or models, um, i.e. pre-insurance model, uh, isn't that what you are ultimately arguing for, is a reduction in the role of insurance? Yes. It's not that insurance companies, right, it's not that insurance companies would completely go away. But, for example, if you think back, okay, so what had happened, what would have happened if prepaid groups had been allowed to flourish along with all the other models? Uh, say the Truman Health Care Bill had been successful and say, you know, we did have universal insurance um uh, based on this model, or even if we didn't, you would see these models start to develop. What would happen is um, those, as medical costs, you know, get higher and higher just due to technology, although I would also argue that a lot of those costs would come back down if we had uh, uh, um, the correct model and the correct mechanism for bringing, bringing costs back down, because in every other economic sector, you see technology comes out, it's very expensive, it's used, and the prices come down. That does not occur in the healthcare sector, which is another clue that something is broken. Um, but as this had gone along, what you would see is just the physicians would insure on the back end with an insurance company. You know, say, you know, in today's terms, their patient exceeds $250,000 in services, then their, you know, their stopgap insurance kicks in. Uh, a lot of these prepaid groups, some of them built their own, say, ambulatory surgery centers and such. Um, some of them would have built their own hospitals. You even saw some mutual aid societies able to do that then. And a lot of them uh, just contracted with hospitals. So you see how the infrastructure was all there. Um, the one piece that people ask me about that I think it's quite clear what would have happened is um, even though people would have belonged to a local 
prepaid group that they choose. And of course, you know, I'm, I'm quite sure that, you know, they'd have a lot more choices in an urban area than a rural area. There would be some kind of national clearinghouse so that if, you know, you need to access medicine and you're out of town. Um, and, and, and that, that's an easy thing to see because that occurs in other sectors as well where, you know, your patient uses healthcare somewhere else and that's credited to a clearinghouse and can be balanced out, uh, at the end of every month or week or, or however they work it. So today, believe it or not, um, well, I know we haven't gotten through Medicare, but, you know, I, I think the punchline there is that when Medicare is adopted in 1965, even though the reformers in the Kennedy and Johnson administration were some of the very same people who had been working on health care since Truman, um, or at least their, their mentees, these are the same people who had been trying to dislodge the insurance company model the whole way through. But then they recognized, look, it's just too built up in the private sector for us to steamroll over it and not include it in the Medicare program. You know, they're, they're regretful about that, but they realize they don't have any other choice. So when they create Medicare, they have to adopt the exact same model. That way they can harness the organizational capacity that's already there. And also, very importantly, they appoint insurance companies to administer the program. Basically, they're the go-betweens. Uh, the federal government and hospitals and physicians. So even with Medicare, now you have insurance companies not just at the center of the private market, now you also have them at the center of the public market as well. And this is why I've kind of, you know, been a bit dismayed about, you know, some of the Medicare for all proposals just because I, I believe there are much better ways to do universal health care than continuing on with the insurance company model that creates so many problems. But you are starting to see today, believe it or not, it's been somewhat tricky, but you're starting to see the emergence of these prepaid group models again. They're often called um, direct primary care. I think some places are called cooperative medicine. They go under different names. They still tend to be single specialty with uh, general practitioners, so I think that'll change. But even in order to start these, physicians are having a lot of difficulty navigating in this environment when all our regulation and legislation has been geared towards um, trying to improve the insurance company model. So where these physician groups are appearing, they often have to go to their state legislatures and have them um, repeal laws against the corporate practice of medicine, you know, laws that have been on the books since the 20s and 30s, having to have them, you know, change the state legislation just to make room for them. The other problem is with some of our federal legislation, it hems in what people can choose. So. For example, health savings accounts, um, I think it's like 50% of employers now offer the health savings account option. But the problem is with a health savings account, you can't go purchase insurance through a doctor group and then, and then get catastrophic coverage on the back end because health savings accounts won't let you buy two forms of insurance. They'll only let you buy one. When what would logically happen is that you would purchase your coverage to the to the, uh, the physician groups and then also get um, catastrophic coverage. So it's been difficult um, for physicians to come up with new ways of doing things. Um, even health maintenance organ organizations in the 1970s, those were supposed to be a turn back to the, the prepaid physician group when all it was was just more built on top of the insurance company model. They just end up being systems that empower the insurer more and, and don't, you know, don't get them out of the way into a, into a far lesser role that is centered around financing and not actually managing and supervising physicians in the way medicine is practiced. So you've covered, the, you've addressed the, uh, the development of uh, the Medicare and um, to, uh, presumably to a degree, even though the, the programs are somewhat different, uh, the Medicaid plan, um, they're administered by the states, but partly funded by the federal government. Um, the federal government essentially with Medicare and 65 and Medicaid adopted the insurance model and thereby reinforced it. And right. so um, in many ways, that's an, uh, a super entrenched model at this point. Mm -hmm. um, but we've, we've seen, as you referred to some current plans, for example, um, Medicaid advantage, excuse me, Medicare Advantage program now has what they call capitated plans. Mm -hmm. um, 
where there's a flat fee for each patient, regardless of the different services provided. Mm-hmm. Um, do you see that as the model for reform, or or at least a return to some degree of cost sensitivity on the part of the patient, or is that still really just um, a minor improvement, drop of, of uh, a drop in the sea of the insurance model that's not really going to make much difference? In a way, it does help somewhat with costs. However, it doesn't have, it's not paired with other mechanisms to protect the patient. So under a competition model, if we keep the system as is, the problem starts to become the worry of sick patients having care rationed to them. Because the provider's only getting a set fee, where is their motivation to go above and beyond to figure out what's wrong with the patient, fix them? Until we have some kind of mechanism uh, on the back end where the physician is also motivated um, to want to, you know, prove themselves, get more patients into their practice, into their group, then you're kind, you know, you're opening up the sickest patients to to the danger of not getting the care they need. But certainly, yes, capitation will bring down costs compared to fee for service. I just think you need a more fundamental reform than that. So on the one hand, and this is what I want to close with, um, is the philosophical um, problem, which is on the one hand, you have our economic understanding of the uh, scarcity of resources and the value of these resources to provide to patients. And you've described, and this is what your book is about, is the description of how people are frustrated by the insurance model, but they see it in some ways as their best, worst option, or the, the least bad option of the different ways of paying for things, uh, for healthcare. But at the same time, over the years we've had this push, uh, eventually from the people that we think of today as progressives, uh, maybe the early progressives weren't so keen on this, but people on the left side of the political spectrum see healthcare as a right. Um, that is to be provided ultimately perhaps even best provided by the government, whereas people on the right side of the spectrum see it as not necessarily a right, but obviously a public good which is best provided by market mechanism. Mm -hmm. And so how do you see your historical account informing the debate about whether health care is a right or at least a public good and how it should be provided. Right. Actually, and and I I like this about the historical account, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't make a claim for either side. And this is, you know, a lot of what I've written about um, or when I've been interviewed is this idea that what I'm talking about is a very bipartisan, you know, concern. I know people on the left are concerned about corporate power and the corporate organization of our health care system. What I'm talking about certainly addresses those concerns. Then on the right, you have people who are concerned about consumer choice. And again, the history I'm showing and what I'm proposing, the types of reforms we need to see, also addresses that. What it doesn't address is whether you're organizing the market, you know, without government intervention or with intervention. You know, I, I certainly have written about, you know, imagining a universal healthcare system based on this. Um, so, <laughs> so it doesn't quite inform that. I, I think it gives something to both sides, though. As far as whether you're going to, you know, have a market, I'm talking to the people on the right, this is not a market. You, your HSAs are not going to fix everything because we still have the insurance company model. You're under the assumption that this insurance company model came about because it outcompeted the other ones and and was very efficient and lowered transaction costs when that isn't the case. Uh, and then to the people on the left, I'm saying, yes, that's, you know, fine, whether you want single payer, universal, whichever it may be, please, for the love of Pete, take into account incentives and how you structure a market in order to have the incentives lined up correctly. Well, let me push back a little bit on that. Um, on the one hand, it sounds uh, like you, you're, you're offering something to both sides, but it, my impression of it, and maybe I'm wrong, but my impression was the problem here is the insurance model. And, mm-hmm. and so the, the, the problem philosophically is, well, if, if health care is a right, 
then uh, normally we think of the government today, rightly or wrongly, we think of the government as providing that right. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's usually a right to something, not, you know, historically a right was something you prohibited the government, uh, you know, the, it, the government could st- – you stopped government action. You thwarted it in order for the individual to be free and exercise that right. But nowadays a right is often thought of as something – to which you are entitled from the government. And so mm-hmm. that conception of a right um, seems to run counter to the history of how the insurance model has developed. So is that right going to be vindicated more fully or better if we do the insurance model? I think it's really neutral on that question because I think it works okay. on either side. Yeah, I really do. Um, it, it certainly thwarted, you know, it thwarts the idea of it being a right. If you want the government to provide health care and make sure that it's a right in the fact that not just on paper people have coverage, but they actually have coverage when they need it and that care isn't rationed, uh, and if that's your concern, then, you know, my answer is then you better set it up correctly. You cannot have a system, whether it's single-payer or just universal, that is set up on the insurance company model. Um, because costs are going to get out of control, and inevitably we will have to ration care. I mean, already healthcare spending is up to almost 20% of gross, you know, gross domestic product. That's 20. That's a fifth of our entire economy. Uh, and so, you know, we have a crisis. We have a, a huge problem. My guest today has been Christy Ford Chapin, the author of Ensuring America's Health: The Public Creation of the Corporate Healthcare System. Christy, thanks for joining us on New Books and Law Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it.